This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested that we watch the 1977 rockumentary ABBA the Movie, which features the Swedish pop group touring Australia. But Adam doesn't actually give us money, which is really the only job of the executive producer. So we decided to go ahead and watch The Greatest Showman instead. Welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Amber Elby, and I'm your ringmaster today. I'm joined by my two co-hosts and our guest. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm the second co-host. It's the first time we've had a ringmaster. Uh, I'm Adam Kobeski, and I'm your hostage for uh, this, this podcast. <laughs> yes, as promised. <laughs> yeah, I, I have shown up. I've done the due diligence. <laughs> and I'm Kelly Fulcher, and I think the only role left for me is guest, so I'll play guest today. Honored guest. <laughs> So everyone, what is your favorite musical of your adulthood? And for me, adulthood means after the age of 18, like it was released post 2000. So you can kind of take that different ways. But what movies have you liked as an adult that have music in them? Um, I think I'm probably going to cheat. What? And mention a movie that's not actually a movie. But I have a fond spot in my heart for Dr. Horrible's Cinelon blog. <laughs> Movie. I have no idea if that's a popular opinion or not. I it is. That's that's a really good choice. It and it, that's uh, the best thing that came out of the writers' strike. I think it's technically not a feature, but I don't think that excludes it from this conversation. So good choice, uh, Kelly. What did you like? Well, I'm going to have a probably an unpopular opinion, um, oh, directly yeah. directly contradictory to a previous podcast of yours. Uh, but I actually I really liked La La Land. And I know you had um, Brian Gilbeski on. <laughs> She's like, no, no, no. She couldn't stand it. I loved it. I loved it. Um, my dad took me to see it. It was like a daddy-daughter date. And then it was a Christmas present when he brought it home. So, yeah, it's it's a fond one. I liked that one a lot. Well, now we know why you all waited for Brianne to leave before we started the episode. Well, yeah, she would have thrown me off the balcony and she heard me say that. <laughs> so I had to wait. So, Charlie, do you want to answer now or do you want me to give my answer? Yeah, so I guess my first question is, would you count... What's a musical? Yeah, what counts as a musical? Actually, that is my question, basically. So if I said <laughs> if I said Inside Lewin Davis, would that count as a musical? I mean, it's very musically centered. Your characters I think... break into song not because they've decided to start playing a song. Yeah, that's the definition pretty much. So, like, Enchanted counted as a musical. When I looked this up online, I think there only has two or three songs in it. So it doesn't have to be full of songs, but it has to have characters singing to express their powerful emotions. Enchanted was glorious. Uh, let me just throw that in there. That was <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> well, I don't think either of my choices count then. <laughs> yeah. So Charlie just doesn't like musicals? Okay, well, the other one I was going to pick was the 2007 movie Once, which I know might be an unpopular opinion, too. Okay, that one might actually count. And Wikipedia does say it's a musical, but the characters sing in the same way they do as Inside Lewin Davis, where it's actual musicians performing. So now hard to say. Both really good movies. I can say that at least. We can argue about whether it's a musical all day long. I was considering saying Enchanted, but I just brought that up. So I'm actually going to go with Moulin Rouge instead, which is probably also an unpopular opinion because it has such polarizing reviews. You kind of love it or hate it. But I think it probably explains why I like The Greatest Showman as much as I do. Moulin Rouge is a movie I think I like the music better than the actual movie. Like, 
Come what may. Yes. Yes. But the actual movie, I'm just like, mm. well, in a lot of ways, that's it's the perfect companion for what we're about to talk about. Then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that was why I chose it, <laughs> and I. And perhaps that leads into my next question. Usually I would ask why you chose this particular film for our podcast, but you all didn't choose it. I did. And I've been bothering Adam and Charlie since at least last summer to do a podcast with me about this no. because I knew. bothering us since roughly 10 minutes after it came out. <laughs> no, that's not true because I didn't see it. You'll learn in a second when I answer I'm, my next question. I'm that pretty... I didn't. I'm pretty sure that you traveled back in time to start harassing us. You may not have done it yet, so that's why you don't know okay. this, but we've been hearing about this incessantly. Okay, good. Well, that means the TARDIS is on its way, and I'll be able to go back there. But uh... Yeah, and it's a weird that that's what you chose to use it on, but <laughs> you do you. <laughs> yeah, you know, of all of time and space, that was totally what I wanted to do, go back and, uh, and just DM you on Twitter about The Greatest Showman. So... Uh, I chose this film. I've been bothering you all to see it. And my question is, why did you not see this film sooner? Um, for me, because no one had forced me to see it. And <laughs> it hadn't got the sort of reviews that made me think, oh, you know, I should check that out. And I don't know if it was it on Netflix at any point. No. Because if it had shown up on Netflix, I might have casually watched it. But, you know, without that, there wasn't any reason. So, Kelly, why did you not see this film sooner? I think it was mostly because of all the hype that it got, which sounds kind of strange. But everybody that I talked to was in love with it after they saw it. And it was almost so much pressure to also be in love with it after I saw it that I went, oh, no, what if I don't actually like it? They'll be like tar and feathers. And so I just went, eh. It was just easier to tell people I hadn't seen it and then wait for their of course, reaction of what? No, you have to see it. I'm like, okay, I will wink. And, you know, it just kind of took on a year and a half life of its own. <laughs> so Charlie, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as Adam. Uh, critical reviews weren't great at the time. And, you know, I'll even read poor reviews and look through and try to find something positive that might make me want to see the movie. But there wasn't anything besides your recommendation, I guess, that was enough. So it's, it's good that I got the excuse. Yeah. And one of the secret reasons that I wanted to do this podcast with you was so I could tell the story of how I saw this movie. I am not a huge theater goer when I go it, because I have two little girls. It costs like 50 bucks for tickets. So I have to really want to go. And uh, I was somewhat aware of this movie existing. It came out in December of 2017, but it's Christmas time. I had other stuff going on. I didn't see it. And then in the spring of 2018, I had friends on Twitter who were like, you have to take your daughters to see this. And I thought, oh, well, whatever. P.T. Barnum is historically kind of a creep, so I don't really care if I see it. But then our local movie chain, the Elmo Draft House, gives free tickets to teachers during spring break. And I am a professor, which counts as a teacher. And uh, I got a free ticket. So I texted my husband on the last Friday of spring break. And I was like, this is playing. Go get tickets for us. And he texted me back just really excited. He was anxious to go see it. He said, this looks amazing. It's Wolverine with a circus. Like, I'll go get tickets. <laughs> And this is really out of character for my husband. Like, probably Adam and Charlie are a little bit entertained right now because he is Wolf not a musical Pierce. fan. And Wolverine yeah. with a circus. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the tagline. 
Yeah. So we went to the movie um, on that Friday. And after the opening shot with Hugh Jackman singing, my husband turned to me and he said, what the f*** is this? And <laughs> then, <laughs> by the, uh, Tony? Tony in the past? Were we so, and uh, by the time we got to the first kind of musical style number, which is A Million Dreams, he had put up a flag to order his second drink. He was drinking whiskey sours and at our movie theater, they serve alcohol. So he was already on his second drink, like 10 minutes into the film. Um, our daughters, of course, loved this movie. We ended up finding out that that was the last week it was showing. So on the next Wednesday, just a few days after we saw it for the first time, we took my mother to go see it. And my daughters just gushed about it. And then as we were leaving the theater, we found out they were doing a sing-along version of it on the next Saturday. So we ended up seeing it three times in eight days. My husband did go to the sing-along, too, and he was a very good sport. So I appreciate him for that. But um, the third time we saw it was, like, my daughter's singing along in the draft house, which is full voice in a theater packed with drunk adults and hyper little kids. So (laughs) it was an interesting experience. So, The Greatest Showman is a fairy tale style musical based loosely, very loosely, on the life of American circus mogul P.T. Barnum, portrayed well, watch, by Hugh Jackson. Watch the spin go on this one. Ooh, <laughs> you lost me at fairy tale. I have some questions. That was a, go on. This was this was the director's words. I wouldn't have Before described it as that, but then the watching the commentary. Out, salvage this thing. <laughs> Do you, we'll get into the history of it, of how it got to be made, because it, it'll probably. I'm assuming you you three don't know the history of this and all the pre-production, but it'll explain why there is kind of spin going into this, too. Um, young Barnum grows up in poverty and rises just enough to win the hand of his childhood sweetheart, Charity, played by Michelle Williams. Through cunning and luck, Barnum invests in a museum of curiosity that falters until he realizes, with the help of his daughters, that he needs a living show to draw an audience. So he invites various oddities to join his act. Meanwhile, Barnum's junior partner, Zach Efron as Philip Carlyle, falls for an African-American trapeze artist named Ann Wheeler, played by Zendaya. As Barnum seeks legitimacy and begins touring with the famed opera singer Jenny Lind, portrayed by Rebecca Ferguson, his personal life unravels, and his circus performers, led by newcomer Kiala Settle as Letty Lutz, discover success without him. After Barnum's tour abruptly ends, his circus burns, his wife and daughters leave, and the greatest showman is left alone. In the end, the circus rises from the ashes, Philip and Anne find love, and Barnum discovers where he truly wants to be with his family. And it's a happy Christmas movie. All right, so fairy tale, justify that. Yeah, yep. So the idea for this uh, started in 2009, and it wasn't until 2016 that it was accepted for a green light by Fox. And in those intervening years, the director, Michael Gracie, and uh, Hugh Jackman we're going around trying to sell people on this idea of let's make a musical about P.T. Barnum, which when most Americans hear that as the pitch, we're kind of like, uh, he didn't have a great reputation. There was stuff going on. Like, um, there's a musical called Barnum. Yes. Well, which wasn't a movie though, right? Well, no, but they could have adapted it, right? Like that's true. But then people get paid rights. So one of the ways that the director pitched this was that it was like a storybook. It was like a fairy tale. It was uh, about love and these things that we associate with the kind of old-fashioned stories. And uh, that was how they sold it instead of just being like, we're going to make a super modern musical about this guy from the 19th century. Uh, They tried to sell it more on emotion. And so that's why I use the word fairy tale. It was the director's word, not mine. 
So this film started with a beginning that the director said was designed to make you put down your popcorn. The idea was you'd be in a movie theater, eating your popcorn, texting, talking to your friends, playing the movie trivia. And then the song would come on uh, along with the um, 20th Century Fox logo. And you would say, what's going on? And you'd start paying attention. So let's start at the beginning and talk about our feelings, our reactions. How did this movie hook you or not when it started? Hated it. Yeah. <laughs> so much. So you, wait, are you agreeing with my husband? Because this is this is the first time this has happened. Possibly, but for different reasons. Okay. Because I put the Blu-ray in and then I went to like go make myself like a sandwich. And the freaking thumping just kept happening and happening and yes! happening on the menu, on like the main menu. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am so over this. I did the same thing. I let it play because I was finishing something up in the kitchen and I went to sit down and I hit play movie and then it goes to the 20th Century Fox logo and they're still yelling. And I was like, no, stop it. So I think it was in the movie theaters. It was probably great because you only heard that like two or three times. If you had the misfortune to watch it at home where you had to listen to that more than the three times, you wanted to punch yourself in the face before it even got started. <laughs> or maybe that was just me. That was not just you. <laughs> I have that written down. I hate this opening number. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that you all were annoyed by that because that's the part that isn't written by the dudes who wrote the rest of it. Justin Paul and Benj Pasek, who wrote the music for La La Land, uh, contributed all the other songs. But no, this... no, 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 no. Because I was mad at them for that, and then I looked it up. They actually only wrote the lyrics. Oh, oh for La La Land? Okay. Yeah, they who contributed the, the lyrics to La, to La La Land? They did write all of the music for this yeah. one, except that opening bit, which was given to them by Ryan Lewis of Macklemore and Lewis. So no. that's why it doesn't quite jive with the rest of the numbers. <laughs> I actually did kind of enjoy the opening number. I don't like the fact that in order to f hear the full number, you have to wait till the end of the movie. It's just kind of like a tease yeah. for the rest of it. And I guess that's kind of the point. But I think the home viewing leveling issues aside, I, I didn't mind it. I think yeah, kind of got me into it the way that you say that they intended. Good. So we have that opening number. And it is our first glimpse of the circus, which there is this time leap where it goes back in time at the end of the song transitions to Barnum's childhood. But a lot of the criticisms that I've read about this, uh, this film online have had to do with the portrayal of the circus. What do you think of the circus and how it just kind of steamrolls you in the first minute of the film? Well, I've never really been to a circus. So all I really have are the to go off of or, you know, the stereotypes or whatever types of movie or TV portrayals there's been of a circus. So for me, the circus part didn't really cause any red flags or anything. It just kind of jived with whatever I would have expected to see out of a circus. And I think that it takes so long to get to the circus after this point that it would have been very hard to not start off with that. Because I mean, it's supposed to be the centerpiece of it. And the most fun part of the movie is the, the visual. to the circus. <laughs> exactly, right? Good point. <laughs> So I thought it was a good idea to have that at the beginning and say like, okay, this is where we're going, but we got to step back a little bit to start. So does that mean the whole movie is a flashback? Uh, it, it is, is until the, like yeah, where we get a little bit in the future at the very, very end, right? And there are time cuts later too uh, within different circus scenes that have been written off by a lot of people as continuity issues, but it's actually, you'll see a change in costume or something like that within the same scene. And it's to show like, this is, 
consecutive nights. It was done very purposefully. It just didn't play right with audiences. So it's kind of an interesting thing that you can look for. Um, one thing then that they didn't do a good job. Well, I think that this is Hot a thing. This is this is a movie that I do think plays better on multiple viewings um, because you t- you do notice things about the circus. When I was w- rewatching it for the 150th time because I have children um, to do this podcast with you. I noticed for the first time that there are tightrope walkers in the background who do flips on a tightrope. And I'd never noticed that before. There's just so much visually that it's difficult to take in on your first viewing or even like your fifth or 10th viewing. So the opening number was very modern. It was different than other films. And then it quickly transitions into um, the song A Million Dreams, which was the first song that was written for this film. Um, And that's more of a traditional musical. So what did you all think about that? I do not understand how that kid was sitting so swallowed and so forward at the same time. Like, <laughs> wow. What? So do for someone who is in... know what that means? No, we have no idea. For <laughs> someone who is in band, Adam, please explain that to us. Like half his vowels are like in the back of his throat. Like, oh. I think opera singers, how they have everything like super far back. Like right. that's what that was. Okay. But like at the same time, he's like bringing everything really forward. Oh, yeah. Just, like, really forward so that it's, like, oh, I'm seeing really forward. And, like, what are you doing? How are you doing this, kid? Who isn't actually the kid singing? (laughs) Oh, that drove me nuts. I could tell from the very first note as soon as the little kid, because I was really excited for that number. I knew there was going to be one of those, like, this is where my life will go. This is my dream type of number. Like, I knew it was coming. And then he started singing. I went, oh, that's not you. Like, not even close. Like, and I know they dub singers sometimes. But that poor kid was not even, it wasn't even that close. Is, the that actually, you're right. It is, you're correct in that it's not him. The actor is Ellis Rubin. And then, um, yeah, it's a different kid. His name is Ziv Zafeman. Okay. Yeah, that just didn't line up. But the the rest of the song was really good. Like, I liked the song. I liked the lyrics and, like, what they were trying to accomplish and how he started off with the little spinning cover over the light. Like, that was super cool. And I assumed that was going to come back later. And it did. But... I liked the song for what it was. I just could not buy that kid was singing that voice. <laughs> with with this particular song, that was where I knew it was storyboarded. That I loved the shot where uh, young Barnum drops the fabric and it just spreads out. And all of the things that people who are involved with film production love about this movie, the cinematography, the production design, the storyboarding, the planning that went into this, the physical sets, all of that was so perfect in this one montage scene. And it's it, for me, it didn't need the music. I, there are definitely a lot of musical numbers in this film that I could watch on mute. And this was one where it, I never noticed your complaints about the music because I just honestly didn't care. I was too absorbed with other things. So we've talked about so far is that, okay, well, it was good to start out with a circus because you needed that. But then we jump backward in time a lot. And then suddenly fast forwarding through time, I thought felt that whole thing was a little bit jarring. Actually, I didn't mind that. I mean, that's necessary. I see what they're trying to do. Like, you've got to show. Yeah, I'm like, let's get to Hugh Jackman. That's right. The reason we're all here. I think that it shows, too, that part of what makes Barnum who he is is that he didn't fully grow up. The idea that there's this this man who builds a world for his daughters, actually, in both cases, and it just leads them to create these fantastical childhood-based entertainments that is what drives, in this case, the story. I also drew a similarity from that opening number um, 
or like I noticed a similarity between the scene where they uh, like as kids, they broke into the fancy house and then like later on, spoiler alert, uh, ended up living there. I noticed that that just seemed to ring with um, It's a Wonderful Life. They decided like they found this house and that was just kind of their they weren't children at the time, um, Mary and George, but that was kind of a childhood dream of theirs, or at least a joke in George's case. And then lo and behold, they actually ended up living there when they had, quote, made it. So I thought that was kind of an interesting similarity. Yeah. And this is the song that kind of solidifies the fairy tale aspect of it, too. One of the things that I love that, again, I didn't notice for the first 50 viewings of this was um, when uh, young Barnum's starving and he tries to steal bread and the bread's taken away from him and he's just kind of in the alley being sad um there's this hand that appears holding out an apple and the arm that's holding it is covered in rags and then it kind of zooms out and you see this ragged figure who really does look like from the back especially like the witch in snow white and i could hear my daughter's gasp at this part in the theater um because she's meant to be a figure that we would traditionally view as being the villain or being scary based on old films but barnum's reaction to her is one of kindness and so that also sets up later for his relationship with the oddities. But it's nice, too, to have the reminder that this isn't going to be a traditional kind of fairy tale. There aren't going to be scary looking witches. So I think that's kind of an interesting twist, too. And it's very subtle. There are a lot of subtleties in this particular song in terms of visual storytelling and leading up to this, too, where uh, the transition from the greatest show into this uh, it just shows a shot of Barnum's ragged shoes. It shows him looking hungrily at some other kid who's eating. And we don't need to have the dialogue of I'm hungry or I need food because it shows us. And I think that the director did a good job with the uh, visual aspects of a lot of the story. So I agree. And I picked up on all of that. But a lot of it feels like shorthand. In order to get to the characters really quickly, we're going to do these couple of things to show you what sort of personality they have. And that's it. And in a lot of ways, they don't develop as more complex characters as the movie goes on. I mean, sure, yeah, we get the setup for who Barnum is at the beginning. And how much does he change between then and the end of the movie? Like, Does he have an arc? That's a question I had, too, was like, does he learn anything from during this movie at all? Uh, when the first shots where he's an adult, where Barnum's with Charity and they're in New York, uh, it's just a little flash of him looking through a window at people fine dining. And then Charity kind of pulls him away and he remembers like, oh, yeah, I have a family. And I think that that's the arc. It's that he finally, by the end of the movie, does get pulled away from his higher aspirations of wanting wealth, of wanting influence, of wanting popularity. And so he has these reminders throughout the film, but he doesn't actually realize the importance of family until the very last scene. Okay, I can see, like, when you say that, I, like, I sort of get it. I'm not really convinced I got that watching the movie, though. No, I I agree. I didn't get that either. And, like, I understand, like, okay, that's sort of what the last, the bar song, I guess, right? I guess that, I sort of see that's what that's getting at, but... I almost wonder if part of the problem is that other than like that moment and then the moment you just described at the beginning, it's not really clear that that's the through line. It comes up again with the Jenny, uh, Jenny Lynn song with uh, Never Enough because Barnum isn't watching her. He's watching the audience. He is seeking praise. And in the scene immediately afterwards, too, where it has a kind of product placement shot of the champagne bottle uh, being opened, that scene kind of sets out that he's chasing higher society. And even before that, too, where uh, well, in no, Zac no. Efron's hook scene. 
No, no, I understand that. I'm saying that what I don't get is the idea that the movie is trying to say that family should come first or roughly like that's what you're saying. Okay. Uh, and I'm not convinced that that is that that theme shows up other than at the very beginning, at the very end, really. Yeah. Okay. I think Barnum's motivations for basically everything that he does were kind of spotty in as much as you didn't really, I think they jumped from thing to thing so fast that you never really got to develop any sort of motivation of his. Like when he was talking to his boss in the workplace that they only showed for like a minute and a half, um, he was chasing the boss down talking about, you know, this new invention and how it'll, you know, we can make a lot of money and it'll be so great. So then you thought, oh, okay, he's, he's obviously chasing money. Cool. And then he goes off and opens this, you know, random seeming um, museum but I don't think you, they developed enough of his motivations for us to really follow any sort of character arc for him. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The movie shows us a lot about who he is inherently as a person and why he would go after all of these things. But it doesn't show us at all why he changes at the end or why he makes the decision to stay with his family or really anything that's quote unquote good that he does. Like he just suddenly decides to do it. It's not like we see any change happening. It's like, oh. Well, I'm going back to my family. Well, why is he going back to his family? I don't know. I don't think the movie did a good job of showing us any sort of progression. I think he goes off on his own a lot. I Specifically when he went and got the loan to open the museum where he had like the stolen deed to the ships that were sunk. Um, and he went out and you know he got this loan. And by the time he involved charity in the quote decision, he had already made the decision. He had already gotten the loan. He had already spent the money on it filled it with stuff and then brought his wife in and went, Hey honey, look what I did, which that was in a character development realm. That was a hard pill for me to swallow. Cause I went, there's, there's a lot of issues here. There's some communication problems in this relationship. Like, is this going to last? But um, the, the way that I saw Barnum's arc was the same as Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins where um, he loses everything and it's when he has everything or when he has everything lost, he's lost his job. Um, he's presumably going to lose his home. His family's turned his back on him. Then they go and fly a kite at the end of Mary Poppins and he realizes that everything's great and then it works out. That's funny you made that connection because as soon as you said Mr. Banks, my heart sunk a little bit because I never believed that arc. I never believed that he really made that decision. Like I totally get that everything went wrong in his life. And basically when he hit rock bottom, I didn't really believe his character's decision to be like, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to go fly kites and appreciate my kids. Like, I, I don't know. That just didn't jive with me. I didn't believe it. And now that you relate that back to Barnum too, I didn't believe Barnum either. I don't know how Barnum came to that decision that, you know what, forget the rest of it. I'm going to focus on my family because it was never important to him to start with. Alcohol. So now all of a sudden it is like Banks was the same way. Alcohol brought him to that. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the other weird thing about that, too, is that when he decides to go back to his and this is really strange, right? Because obviously being with your family is good and not cheating on your wife is good. But <laughs> it when he goes back to his family, it's like, here's Zac Efron. You can have the circus now. It's kind of like, oh, but that's who he is. That's his character is that he's this driven sort of guy who's built this thing and you kind of want him to keep doing that and building more and putting on more shows. And I don't know, it was almost like, okay, well, he's just not even himself anymore. And I mean, Michelle Williams understands who he is the whole time, right? So I almost kind of expected at the end being like, okay, we've got to come to some sort of accord, but I understand that you're going to keep on moving on with your life. It was just weird. Well, there, there's an interesting transition at the end from being 
part of the spectacle to being in the audience. And I love most things that have a play within a play. And this is this has a play within a play. It's not a play like in the Hamlet kind of sense, uh, but it's it definitely has this spectacle. And there's an interesting relationship between audience and critic. And uh, there's a critic within the film that actually criticizes the circus in the same way that a lot of people criticize the movie. So there's yeah. uh, that there's that relationship. But um, it's the idea of we transition in life when when we progress through the stages of life. And uh, we may be part of the spectacle. We may be part of the show at first, but then we pass that on to the next generation and we become part of the spectator. I like that. <laughs> I like that explanation of it. <laughs> I get that when you're explaining it to me, but I did not get that when I was watching the movie. Also, just the fact that that critic is, was there, like... Ah, uh, it killed me. He was, it yeah. killed you in a hilarious way or it killed no, you? No. In a tragic way. <laughs> Any time that a movie makes a point of bringing in the hard-ass critic... Ugh. Who's like, oh, you guys are terrible, <laughs> right? Like, I'm just like, oh, it's it's like a movie knows that they're not the best of all movies. And so they like try to force you onto their side by essentially having like a straw man critic to sort of comment on the movie itself. Although, you know, not directly, but obliquely. And this was one of those things where it was like, Oh, well, if you don't like the movie, that's because you're like the New York Herald critic. So uh, you, when's the last time you smiled? I'll tell you when I smiled, mother. <laughs> it's like the it's like they didn't have a real antagonist in the movie. So they had to keep yes. throwing this critic in there as the antagonist. And I don't know. I don't, I don't think he was necessary. Like, I'm sure there was a critic involved, but I don't think he needed to be the root antagonist throughout the show. I was really on the fence about it because historically that was some sort of issue for P.T. Barnum. Anyway, I don't know whether he really responded to critics or he cared, but there was a lot of criticism of him and a lot of people at the time who were like, yeah, this is this is amoral or this is base entertainment and people shouldn't go watch it. And I'm sure there were lots of critics criticizing at the time. So I almost felt like it was OK. But yeah, I did get that sneaking suspicion that maybe somewhere underneath they were doing meta commentary and that I definitely did not enjoy. See, I thought he was necessary as a fun sponge. Because there are a lot of highs. There are a lot of emotional highs in the film. There's a lot of happiness and uh, like people discovering themselves and discovering love and all of these really positive things. So they, they did need to have a narrative beat with someone kind of being like, no, no, this is let's have some negativity in here or else it would just be too much the entire time. But then he comes back. Then he comes back and says, well, you know what? I, I'm upset that this burned down and there's actually good to what you're doing. And some critics might say this really positive thing about you. And I'm like, what? So he believed that the whole time and didn't publish it? Just, no, he had a character arc, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Character arc. <laughs> a character arc that was so, one discrete step that happened suddenly. <laughs> so we've been talking both during this uh, recording and we were texting a little bit prior about the history and historical inaccuracies. But Adam, how about you tell us some of the things that bothered you historically? All right, so the one thing I immediately just noticed right away, that's a tiny thing and is not really relevant, but Burroughs adding machines that he was using in the office weren't invented until the 1880s. <laughs> well, maybe we should establish when you think this movie takes place, Adam. Well, based on the fact that it's allegedly P.T. Barnum and no one can get money because of the panic of 1837, I'm going to guess those scenes are roughly around 1838, 1839. Well, maybe the machine was invented and 
it was that stupid boss that didn't pick it up. And so it took another 50 years for it to be uh, to be fully developed again independently. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> nice try, though. Good try. You get points for points for trying. <laughs> I guess my larger question is, OK, given that this very, very freely plays with the actual life story of P.T. Barnum and that, you know, some of the very general things are true. And then basically, as far as I can tell, just about all the details aren't. For instance, um, there's no evidence that he ever had any sort of romantic inclinations with Jenny Lind or that she felt that way about him. Like Zac Efron's character, like, why don't they just call him Bailey? Like, why, why is he this new character? Why is he just not Bailey? You know, stuff like that. Um, the Civil War doesn't come up at all in this movie. Given that they seem to have this theme about like, oh, oddities are, you know, people too and should have equal respect and stuff. Like, it seems like having the Civil War and being about slavery and things, right? Like, that seems like something they could have potentially tied in, but that doesn't come up at all. So my larger question overall is then is what does this movie actually gain by ostensibly being about pt barnum versus just some completely new creation and i've been thinking about this i think that it's lose lose if they were to make a movie about a 19th century circus mogul and just have him be some random person or someone you've never heard of um then people would say well why is it about this fictional character or this lesser known person when it could be about pt barnum but then when we have it about barnum then you're left with well how accurate do we want to make it because visually a 60 year old guy doing this stuff is just not appealing um, and uh, then there are problems with, well, how long does this take place over? Because the children don't age. The narrative forces itself to be condensed in terms of time. And as soon as you have that, it, it makes it fairly impossible from a storytelling point of view to have it be a real biopic in the sense of like, let's accurately follow Barnum's life. Yeah, that makes sense if his life isn't quote sexy enough to be part of the film then yeah in order to make the film successful in order to tell the story they want to tell they almost have to take creative license with it and go okay well in order to make him sympathetic and in order to make you know the the family part of it if that is truly a theme that they wanted to run through they needed to you know establish that family they needed to put it in jeopardy by throwing in the the jenny lind affair quote unquote like they needed to take artistic license with his life in order to make the film entertaining enough to to make it so we discussed this a little bit when we talked about butch Cassidy and the sundance kid which is also very very loosely based on historical record and it what the issue we had with the screenplay wasn't so much you know is it accurate or is it not accurate it's that if it's going to be inaccurate why did they make the particular choices they made? Like, again, I'm talking about the Civil War. It's not it's not so much that they took it out. It's that they could have left it in and had some interesting angles to use that they just chose not to. But um, I, I compared this earlier in a conversation with Adam um, to what Shakespeare did with his histories. His histories are very inaccurate. Um, and it's because Shakespeare didn't care so much about let's make uh, this perfectly accurate representation of Richard III's life. It was more like, how can we take this kind of creepy king and make him entertaining and get people to actually come and see the show? Okay, but the difference between like Shakespeare and these guys. <laughs> said, with, said with such disdain. Yeah. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> is that Shakespeare is 
you know, changing the history and stuff for various reasons. But one of the things that he does is provide depth to these characters for the most part, not always, right? But he has, like, themes that are very clearly underlined that are running through the whole thing that people are supposed to pick up on and frequently do. And, you know, he's saying stuff about, you know, various aspects of humanity and things like this. This movie, by contrast, doesn't do that. And that's sort of the thing we've been talking about repeatedly, right? Is like, what's the point of changing all this stuff if the story that you want to tell doesn't actually say anything worthwhile? Beyond just, here's a fun popcorn movie for 105 minutes. You're right about the Shakespeare analogy. But I think that part of that has to do with who is supposed to see this movie. This movie came out last Christmas. It actually came out one year ago today. As of this recording. Oh, nice. So December 20th, 2017. And this is a film that I don't think was made for us. I think it was made for kids. And I think that the reason that it kind of glosses over a lot of these deeper level things, um, meaning of life type questions, is because they don't need that. Uh, Mary Poppins is the same thing. I have just both given you a look. (laughs) So are you going to argue that this was made exclusively for adults? Yeah. Yep. I think so. Maybe not exclusively for adults, but adults certainly in mind. Yeah, because I think more of the, a lot of the the hype that I had heard about this movie going in was more about like self-acceptance and how to, you know, encourage, if not force tolerance upon societies that really aren't really game for it. But I think that goes way above kids' heads. Like I would imagine any, I'm picturing like a a 10 or a 12 year old maybe sitting here watching this movie when Barnum refuses to let the cast come into his celebration after Jenny Lynn's um, performance and they, the bearded lady breaks into her song. I don't think the kids really get why that happened. Like, I don't think that kids are getting most of what this movie seems to be about. And I honestly think part of that is because um, the the editing in this movie, whether that's the literal shot editing or just like the way they've chosen to put the story together, is very choppy. Like it just like jumps from scene to scene without really being obvious what the connective material is. So I agree with you, right? That's like at that moment, like when she just starts seeing it, like I sort of intellectually understand what they were doing. But in terms of what the movie actually showed me, yeah, if I was 10, I don't know if I necessarily the first time I saw it would have instantly made the connection either. Just like, oh, okay. Another song. Yay. (laughs) And I think this is interesting to talk to you all because you're the only people I've talked to who didn't see it at the theater. And um, having seen it at the theater and I, I left out one of the viewings we had of this. We, uh, we went to a church festival that was not our church or even geographically anywhere near us, but um, it was a festival way in South Austin where okay, this had been used as part the of their place playing the greatest show. <laughs> Why do I feel like she totally <laughs> said that? There's got to be a, re- a recording of her talking to her Google <laughs> asking no, that it exact was, question. <laughs> so there's South this Austin at such and such church. <laughs> there's a All right, website. Tony, let's go. There's a website called Free Fun in Austin, and this is one of the featured events. Um, so, like, it's the place where all the parents go to find out what free petting zoos or whatever there are on the weekend. And so, this last summer, they had a free showing of The Greatest Showman, which, interestingly, t- they took out the other side of the song because it was at a church and there was drinking. But um, oh, hmm. it, it was because I was like, I wonder what they're going to do with that song. Well, they just cut it out. Um, <laughs> but uh, this was it was part of a. A sermon series that apparently they had done um, leading up to showing this film. And it was chock full of little kids, um, younger than mine. My youngest is seven. And they, 
they seem to understand it. I think that kids pick up a lot more on um, the Letty Lutz, uh, this is me part, because of simply bullying. And uh, as a parent of children who were bullied at school, I think that they relate to that a lot more than I do in certain ways. And it's worth noting, too, that this cleaned up at the Teen Choice Awards last year. It won. <laughs> I think it. I, you can look this up on Wikipedia to verify later, but I think it won more Teen Choice Awards than, other, than any other film that particular year. Um, my daughters didn't pick up on why Zac Efron couldn't get with Zendaya. And my oldest daughter had the best explanation, which just filled my heart with joy. It was that she would still be able to work. Because my daughter said, well, I know that a long time ago, girls who were married couldn't have jobs, but he would let her keep her job because he was the ringmaster and he wouldn't make her stop doing trapeze. <laughs> and Aww. I thought it was so sweet. And then I had to explain to her that this was before the Civil War because that wasn't in the movie at all. And once she knew that, she was like, oh, well, that makes sense. But it's missing that historical beat. Adam it kind of did need that for us. For some historical reference. Okay, so there's a couple things that bothered me about that storyline. One was that he can't be with Zendaya because, you know, historically racism, etc. Slavery. But it's very different to talk about what the context is when this movie would have taken place as opposed to, like, say, you know, 1960s or 1970s or something like that. And it felt more like just sort of this, like, underlying shunning of the character that like you'd see in like more recent history. So it was just kind of unusual. Like that's one thing where I think the historical context would have helped a lot. They made it about class too. They had the classist comment where uh, when um, Zac Efron is going to take uh, Zendaya to the theater and he runs into his parents. And I love that they called her the help because it was racist. It was classist. It was all of the obstacles that, was, that were standing in the way of their relationship summed up in a single word. So one question I had about that line, had the Carlisles actually seen the circus show and had seen Ann Wheeler perform, or were they just making a racist comment that a black woman would, of course, be the help? I got the sort of impression that they wouldn't have been the sort of people who would have gone to the show. They made it pretty clear in the other side in the song that there was a big divide between the upper crust and the type of people who would go and see the circus. Right. Okay. So that line, I guess at the time I wasn't considering the potentially racist undertones there. So I didn't quite understand why he was saying that line. Cause I went, if you haven't seen the show, you have no idea who this is. Like he's just out with a girl, but I have today's society glasses on. And so that's why I didn't think anything of that. But I, I don't know if you can get away with having a movie set in that time period and not mention slavery at all. How can that not play into this whole relationship? And I mean, maybe that is, you're talking about maybe being directed by an Australian as opposed to being viewed by an American. And that's something to us, it's very much in our brains all the time when we think about the 1800s. So so I like your viewing of this as, you know, oh, it could be either thing and it's a little bit more subtle, but people can pick up on it. Whereas I'm like, it's there's an elephant in the room, a non-CGI elephant that we need to, uh, needs to be addressed <laughs> in some way or another. Well, I think that one problem that uh, a lot of viewers and some of you all are having, too, is this idea that it is in the 1840s. And I really don't think that it is. I don't think it I don't think we could even narrow it down to 50 years. I think it's sometime in the 19th century. And that was how the director described it to the costume designer. He said, well, I want 19th century costumes, um, which is why we see the weird mix of the men's costumes being a little bit more modern and the women's being generally older mixed in with this couture that's worn by Jenny Lind and um, 
by Letty Lutz and uh, some of the female performers. So it's... Except when you tie your story to real historical people and events, suddenly you are locked into a time period. And then it's just a matter of, you know, whether your customer is actually any good at their job or not. <laughs> well, it did. It actually did win quite a few costuming awards. Um, Congratulations. But those costumes were fabulous. Whether they were, they were historically they were, accurate yeah, or not, I don't know. Fine, but, but Jenny Lynn's costumes I would wear as a Halloween costume or just as a I feel like wearing this kind of thing on any given day. Okay. Yes, that is... No, no actual <laughs> argument there. But, what? Like, this is sort of, again, my point, right? Of just like, if you want to tell a story like this where you don't want to address unfortunate things because you can't really say, oh, it's just America in the 1800s because a lot of shit happened in the 1800s <laughs> in America. <laughs> And I do, I do really want to have a monolithic century. I do really want to have some reason for why it was Barnum and why they insisted on that. That is something that would help a lot of people's problems with the film. Um, because if it wasn't Barnum, uh, their the reviews would be totally different. If you look up the little header review that's on Rotten Tomatoes, it uh, criticizes the film for not more closely following Barnum's life. And so they could have done away with that by having it be about some random person. And I cannot find, I, I looked online and the internet failed me. I couldn't find an explanation for why they chose Barnum um, over just made up Joe Schmo circus guy. But uh, I, the, I, under, I understand what you're saying in that if you make it about someone fictional, people say, well, why isn't it? Why not just do P.T. Barnum? Mm -hmm. But I honestly think that that's probably ultimately the better path because it's a lot easier to say, well, it's not P.T. Barnum because his life mirrors in some ways, but it's pretty different in all these other respects. Okay, fine, I got it, right? Whereas when they actually make it about P.T. Barnum, then everyone is understandably saying, this is totally weird. Why isn't this being brought up? Why is this being completely ignored? Like that stuff. Really, like you called it a lose-lose earlier, but I'm not... It seems to me like it's a it's a little lose versus a really big lose. <laughs> and they went with the really big lose. So... Paul Thomas Anderson has a movie called The Master, and it's pretty clearly about L. Ron Hubbard. But, you know, besides like litigious reasons, they might not actually use him. They don't use him as a character. They just have somebody who behaves very similarly and has a very similar biography to him. And they get away with it just fine. I mean, it's a movie that works really well. So it can be done. I mean, it happens a lot. How much of this maybe was Hugh Jackman's doing? Because it seems like Hugh Jackman had a lot to do with not only the script writing, um, but actually getting, you know, the the director, like Michael Gracie, was, seems to be almost his pick. Like he met Michael Gracie at a party and said, I want to do a film with you. And Gracie went, yeah, 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 everybody says that. And then later, like Hugh Jackman sent him the script. So it's like, how did Hugh Jackman have the script? Like, did he did he write this? Was this his idea? Or was this something that he just happened to have in his hot little hand and could send it off? So the myth behind the creation of the film is that uh, back in 2009, when they were filming the Oscars that Hugh Jackman was hosting, uh, one of the producers of the Oscars said, oh, you remind me of P.T. Barnum because you're the greatest showman. And he started chatting with a producer who ended up producing this film. And over uh, some period of time, um, they got a script written um, Hugh Jackman actually filmed a commercial with Michael Gracie, which you can look it up on YouTube. It's a pretty entertaining commercial. And when I'd heard about this, I, I kind of laughed and dismissed it. But it's a 90 second commercial for Lipton iced tea uh, that's filmed in a Tokyo hotel. And the whole thing is a musical dance number. And it's actually pretty fantastic for a commercial. <laughs> that sounds excellent. It's, yeah, I recommend it. 
Um, and so uh, Michael Gracie had worked in that commercial with him. And it, yeah, within a few days of the rap party of that, uh, Hugh Jackman sent him the script. And then they were sending out uh, requests for songs. And they would request them from all kinds of different uh, singer-songwriters, famous ones. And the, they didn't actually commission a soundtrack in the way that most Hollywood films would, where they'd get... Um, a single songwriter, a pair of uh, partner songwriters to write the entire soundtrack. They were trying to piecemeal it together with one song and then the next. Uh, the two songwriters at the top of their list were Justin Paul and Benj Pesak. And uh, they were also the ones who later ended up doing the lyrics for La La Lands, but at this time they were unknown. And so this was their first musical that they wrote together. And then they couldn't sell the film to anyone for probably a lot of the same reasons that we've been pointing out. Um, and finally, they had this, again, kind of mythic meeting with the executives at Fox where uh, Hugh Jackman couldn't sing. He had just had plastic surgery um, for skin cancer on his face. And uh, the guy who plays Wynn and Supergirl, who I'm sure Adam knows who I'm talking about, but I can't remember his name right now. Uh, he sang Hugh Jackman's part um, until the last song, uh, which the one that the last one performed was uh, From Now On. And then Hugh Jackman burst into song. And it was at that point that the executives of Fox gave him the green light to go ahead and finally, after eight years, I believe, to actually make the film. What's your, what's your source for that? The uh, director's commentary and the four plus hours of bonus footage on the Blu-ray that you apparently didn't watch, Adam, even though you love <laughs> physical media. Why didn't you spend, well, I guess it would have been like four eight hours. hours preparing for this episode. <laughs> it's interesting you said that about the the music where you know normally when you get one pair like one person to write the whole movie i would think if when that happens you would get kind of a similar theme like the songs kind of they're pretty similar there's you know themes that go out through them but with this movie i kind of felt like some of the songs were exactly the same like rewrite the stars and the whoa like those were the only different pieces every other song was peppy and upbeat and kind of had a similar message except for jenny lynn's song by the way just like watching like this you know acclaimed opera singer and she goes on the same stage and starts singing never enough and has the most airy sound i've ever heard in my life airy <laughs> super musical theater poppy like my suspension of disbelief crashed hard at that and there's moment. no way she projected past like the third row of the audience there's no way she filled that entire theater with that voice but i digress I was sitting in suspense waiting for their affair to start when she sang her first number and he was petrified like he'd never heard her sing before. Oh my gosh, how's she going to be? And she opens her mouth and the most glorious sound in the land comes out. We'll talk oh, about that great. later. Um, but the way he was watching her um, is the way that every girl singer wants to be looked at by a guy who's supporting them. Like He was so entranced and so, in my eyes, in love with her that I went, Oh no, here we go. This is, this is going to be a problem. And I was just waiting for how quickly they were going to get to that because I could just see it coming. Which apparently was not historically true. Apparently uh, so not. It's historically so... true that Barnum got Jenny Lind over to America to tour. Right. It's not true that they had any sort of romantic oh. connection. Okay. Thought it was funny to read on Wikipedia rather than being bankrupted by this tour. A P.T. Barnum made $500,000, which I think was the equivalent of like 
$14 million today. I agree, Kelly. When I first saw this, I was like, oh, that is how you look at some other woman when your wife is in the box looking down at you, seeing what's going on. After I've seen this as many times as I have, I started to realize that I don't think he's looking at Jenny Lind. I think that he's looking at what she represents, but mostly at the audience. Um, And I haven't counted this, but I think there's more time spent showing his gaze falling on the audience and actually on her. I usually look up these parental websites that are like, well, it's rated PG and here's why it's PG. And uh, one of the reasons it gave for this being rated PG was what it called um, implied infidelity, which I thought was a great, (laughs) great warning. That's Um, funny. So I'm going to argue that if it takes a person 50 times to see something before the true intent is revealed, that maybe you did a bad job making your movie. (laughs) Or maybe you're just not the best little audience member you can be, Adam. Maybe that's it. And don't you think a more interesting character would have been a character who sees the audience and sees the money she represents, but then also falls in love with her and has trouble telling what the difference is? Like, I thought that's what was going to happen. I wonder if that's what they were trying to show. I guess there's the part where he kind of rejects his wife in favor of staying at the party. That does happen. Um, but it doesn't really feel like it gets close enough to him actually cheating on his wife to be a full-fledged conflict. And it should have been, but um, they had to cut a lot of Jenny Lynn's lines. Um, I think he said they only have a quarter of what was originally there. Um, so there was supposed to be more conflict. There was supposed to be a lot more tension. There was supposed to be a bigger fall for Barnum before he'd lift himself back up and try to uh, reconnect with his wife and family. But a lot of times that's where the good movie lives. It's all those things that you end up cutting. I mean, if you're not doing a good job editing, I guess. I wonder how many times with movie editing, they bring in a completely random outside person, like the director's second cousin twice removed or something, who's not at all connected to the story. They can sit down and watch it and go, yeah, you didn't tell us enough about Jenny Lind and P.T. Barnum. Like, I don't I don't understand. Like, I wonder if they get it because they're so into the story. So sort of like an objective eye. Yeah, you need an objective eye to have pointed that out. Now, I'm glad that they didn't add in any more about Jenny Lind and P.T. Barnum to kind of establish any sort of relationship between them, because I think that honestly would have ruined the movie for me. That's a big turnoff on characters um, for me is any sort of... Cheating? Yeah, cheating. I don't like emotional cheating. Anything that looks like... I don't really care about my wife. I'm going to go for this shiny new toy. I don't like it. And if they had continued that or developed that storyline some more, I think I would have been a lot more unhappy with the movie and with P.T. Barnum's character than I was. Like, I tolerated it, but if it had been more, I don't think it would have made it for me. But then when he comes back at the end and makes up with Michelle Williams, it's kind of like, well, you know, what really happened? Yeah, but that's because the ending of this movie is terrible, right? Like, <laughs> it's like they, like you said earlier, I think they they put it in the script, and so that's why it happened. Yeah. Like yeah. the characters, the actors don't know why that took place. The, the ending of this movie really feels like we're up against the deadline. Let's just put it together close enough. <laughs> but I think that in a way, we're talking about a straw man film. You're talking about the adult film that you want. You want the character development. You want the time spent on this. The timing is great for younger audiences. There's a song every 10 minutes. It's perfect. Um, This is something, I mean, this is why it did really well with the Teen Choice Awards. The young people don't care about all of these things that we care about. 
as adults. And it's not going to have infidelity. It's not going to have civil war. It's going to be something that's safe and entertaining and the whole family can enjoy it. And it's not going to be like this Oscar winning best picture type uh, level of quality, but it's going to be something where when you leave, you have a smile on your face. And that line okay. was actually in the film. Well, that did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, okay, so serious, real talk here. For the most part, I was like, okay, this movie's fine. It's, for me, not the best movie ever, but I don't hate it. And then the moment when the theater burns down and they don't have the money, right, and he's, like, all, like, depressed, they have the bar song, and then, like, the movie just, like, oh, P.S., no, everything's fine, right? And then, like, from that moment on to the rest of the movie, I actively hated this film. I'm surprised it took you that long, because when I recommended this to you, Adam, I imagined a hate watch from the beginning. So I'm impressed it took you that long to actually, and I mean this earnestly. Um, But but I actually, like, I enjoy musicals, right? Like You perform in them. I perform in musicals. (laughs) Like, I like musicals, right? So I tried to keep my sort of expectations, I tried to keep them lowered because you were trying really hard to just, like, shoot them through the roof. And I knew that was not going to be the right way to watch this movie. (laughs) But so for the most part, like, it was fine. It's not a deep movie at all. And to the extent that it wants to have serious conversations, it wants to have them very shallowly, right? About like, oh, you know, everyone should be treated well and classes suck and that kind of stuff, right? But when they went just like in the space of literally three minutes from everything I ever loved is gone, my family has left me, my theater has, or museum, whatever, has burned to the ground, I have no money left. Oh, well, let's just have a drinking song. You're right. It's fine. I'm on board. Oh, and by the way, Zach Efron's going to give me money for no reason whatsoever because just, oh, he needs to have like an up moment to the end. Like I was so like, (laughs) here's how mad I was Uh up to this point. There had been a whole bunch of like CGI augmentation of the movie. And I was kind of like, okay, fine. I understand this is a movie made in 2017. It's not singing in the rain. It's okay. I get it. Okay. After that point, all the CGI started really pissing me off because I was in this angry frame of mind where I was like, those lions are fake. Those are terrible lions. Elephants, I don't buy it. This is awful. And I was literally just like grumpy pants the whole rest of the When he sprinted after the train to go out to the beach to get to his wife. And I was like, all right, that's like the fakest scene I've ever seen. But go ahead on your train, sir. And yet there was the rooftop scene where they were dancing for the the very beginning of the movie where they had hand-painted backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So it can be done, and it was done in this movie, and then a lot of other places it wasn't, and it just kind of stands in contrast. I do have to defend the film, Adam, because no, because <laughs> there there's a misinterpretation here. The CGI animals were purposefully done enough unrealistically to not fool anyone into thinking that they had real elephants on set. Yeah, the director I'm was very. Uh, According I, to the director. Yeah, um, exactly. That sounds like after the fact rationalization, like that's what we meant to do. Smiled. It couldn't possibly be that, you know, we ran out of money and couldn't afford it, but said, screw it. We're going to do it anyway. Show us the rendering. Show us the high quality rendering that they downsampled. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then I'll believe they're not you. Going to, they're not going to make the baby elephant smile if they're trying to be realistic. <laughs> The director and the cinematographer were both visual effects artists in the 90s. So they were using their older techniques um, with lighting, with uh, matte painting. And so we end up with this, again, Mary Poppins kind of feel, but it was created using 
uh, the 3D printers and computer modeling prior to making it physical. Huh. La La Land did something similar. And from what I hear, y'all couldn't stand that. So... <laughs> 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 to be fair, Amber wasn't on that episode. So. Okay, that's that's true. true. <laughs> it was Brandon and Jessica, who's not here today. So that's a good transition into talking about La La Land. I mean, okay, so just to address the point that you brought up, the mm-hmm. difference for me between La La Land and Greatest Showman regarding CGI and that stuff is for the most part, until I started hate watching it by the end, um, in Greatest Showman, like to me, the CGI was being used to enhance things. And like, okay, like, yes, it's easier to, you know, do like a CGI scene here rather than try and build a giant set or something for like one shot, stuff like that. You know, I get that. Whereas in La La Land, it frequently felt like the CGI was being used to cover up the flaws in the pro in the movie for me. So like, for instance, the thing I always think about is when um, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone do the dancing in the planetarium where it's them for a little bit doing like some basic choreography. And then suddenly it shifts to like silhouettes where they're in the star field. And to me, that's like, okay, well they're covering up the fact that it's not Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. And they've just gotten two other people of roughly the same heights to dance. And that's why they're in (laughs) silhouette because it's not actually them. Interesting. Okay. That's a, I suppose for somebody that was watching it to, to dissect the film itself, that makes a lot of sense. Because I, the, one of the later times I watched, because I watched it several times, I made that same connection where I went, oh, that's probably not them, and that makes me sad. Yeah, you're, you're probably right that when we watch these movies for this podcast, we, right. actually, <laughs> we do have a different eye than when we're just watching. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's why this worked for me, is because I watched The Greatest Showman like with an eye. But with La La Land, with the planetarium scene, it's funny you mentioned that because that was actually one of my favorite scenes. There's actually a painting of that scene hanging in my parents' house that my sister did. Like, this is a family favorite. But I thought that scene was the reason they did it that way because it's so wildly unbelievable. Like, sure, they're floating in the ceiling in the planetarium. Totally. Dream first date. Um, they used a different type of you know, cinematography, a different type of technique to show more of a whimsical feel to it because that is part of the reason it was named La La Land is because it's got that whimsical kind of none of this will ever happen, but actually some of it will. Like it makes you think about it. But I think those Man, we should have had you on the La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> Brienne and I duke it out. Um, it I what I saw those different techniques in La La Land were there to just kind of illustrate that this wasn't an entirely rooted in reality storyline, and that their reactions and their individual characters weren't really rooted in reality consistently. They had different pops of a dream style sequence. And I think that's the first time that they have that together. Okay. So I saw it more as a different way to, to tell more of the story. And in greatest showman, I saw it as you were trying so hard to put in some sort of artistic piece where you had, you know, either miniatures or hand painted sets. I didn't know any of this at the time, but now that I do, I'm like, Oh, you, you tried so hard and it just didn't, it didn't blend with the rest of it but it didn't stick out like it did in La La Land. Like La La Land, it felt like it was supposed to stick out. Mm. These ones felt like, this is totally supposed to blend. Let's cross our fingers and hope it works. It didn't. I will say that I thought in Greatest Showman, the most effective CG enhanced shot is when Michelle Williams has her song, which is like the only ballad in this whole thing, right? Everything else is basically like up-tempo. But there's a moment where you can see her like silhouette, but like, not complete silhouette, so you can still tell it's her dancing with Hugh Jackman's. And then oh, yeah. Hugh Jackman sort of like fades away as the curtain flutters. Mm-hmm. I really liked that shot. I love that. That was a cool shot. 
agree. Like I actually stopped and backed up and watched that shot again. Oh, well, I loved their opening number dancing. So I loved that they brought it back to that. Like their opening number dancing was intense. And the way that she kind of flashed back to that, not only to, you know, have that piece of art back in the film, but then that was almost kind of their original start. Like that's kind of how she remembers their relationship is just their whimsical dancing. And we had it for a second and now he's gone. Yeah. And you went, Oh no. But the choreography I thought across the board was really, really good. I loved uh, rewrite the stars for a number of reasons. That's my ultimate favorite there. The song, the cinematography, the, choreography all of it but for the the musical aspect of it i thought they did a great job with the choreography the upbeat choreography seemed rather repetitive where they did some of the same motions over and over like if my relatively untrained eye can pick out the footwork and imitate it in my own living room it wasn't that tough (laughs) and that was something that they had tried to do on purpose again teen choice awards um where they wanted it so kids could pick up on it uh and the only example i can think of is uh and this is totally aging me and Adam and Charlie, but in She's All That, they had the dance number at the prom that like people when we were in high school would try to learn that. And I was not one of them because I'm not that kind of nerd. But it was it reminded me of that, that thing like and you can do this at home, um, which is fun for the young folks. You haven't seen She's All That, so you're not getting that reference. I, I can't even tell you who's in that movie. Oh, That's it did not age well. Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yes. Look at me coming out of nowhere with that. I didn't even use Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> that that does actually make a lot of sense then if it was geared towards children, if that was their initial thought was to make it maybe not geared towards children, but at least family friendly. So it was encompassing of the kids. Um, those songs definitely did it then. Yeah, because the choreography was fun. It was entertaining. They zoomed in on Zendaya enough times where the kids went, I'm bored. Oh, look, someone I know. Uh, <laughs> um, But... One thing that I thought was so interesting is the choreographer was on set uh, with a, a cameraman who had on a steady cam, and this the choreographer would lead him through the dance scenes to kind of have the best angles and to not get punched in the face by one of the dancers. So they did have this interesting immersive element, and I'd, I'd never heard of that um, with other musicals. Maybe it happens, but it wasn't something I was aware of, so I was entertained. I've never heard of that either, but that sounds like a brilliant idea. And anybody that is making a musical that isn't doing that is probably making their lives a little bit harder. <laughs> like I've never done a TV musical or like a filmed musical, but even on like a stage musical, you have to run that choreography. You know, you run it in a in an open space so you can learn it. You can stumble around and bump into things or whatever, but then you actually need to practice it on your stage with all of this set. Like you have to be able to move around what things are going to be in your way yeah whatever people are going to be in your way and whether items are going to be in your way up to and including a man and or a woman and a giant camera so you (laughs) i'm glad that they did that that's kind of a cool idea it's another never something i thought of but definitely helpful i'm sure one question that i had that i don't think we we addressed mostly because we covered other pieces of it and we might have danced around it but i never really understood pt barnum's motivation to create this show, like create the circus in the first place. Like there were several mentions made, kind of jabs made by other people about how maybe he was doing it just to make money. Maybe he was doing it um, to exploit these people to make money. Maybe he was trying to give these, you know, oddities a, a home, a place where they felt safe. Maybe he was trying to quote, teach society a lesson kind of thing. And 
again, maybe it relates back to the fact that the character wasn't really developed enough for me to understand this, but I never really got a clear answer as to why he did all of this in the first place. Just to make money, or did he change maybe halfway through and decide, you know, these are actual people, not exhibits. I I never really got that. Well, I think that that the initial decision to open the museum was set up in A Million Dreams, where he sees this magical world. Um, It's really an abandoned house, but when he shines his metaphorical light on it and physical, literal light, there are elephants in the shadows and lions. And so he was trying to create this world for other people to share in his fantasies. And then the transition from museum to living circus was based on his daughters with the wonderful little comments about the mermaids. And the only thing I knew about Barnum prior to this was the Fiji mermaid scam. So I was like, that's where that comes in. But um, it was uh, their comment combined with the showing of the Tom Thumb book and then the apple that brought him back to his childhood. Yeah, I'm definitely going to agree with Kelly here. I just I feel like the movie's showing that he's doing it for money and that there's no real transition between when he's doing it for money and when he's doing it to provide something for someone else. We're kind of told that at the end, like, oh, you've made this space where all of these, you know, different people can be themselves and championed, right? And there's there's nothing in there really that tells me that's why he did it. And shouldn't yeah, that matter? Like, if we're supposed to say he's a great guy, then, like, I would hope that the movie shows at some point that he did it on purpose instead of just, oh, that's a nice little side benefit. Right. And we've heard historically that he's not that great of a guy. And that was really all I knew going in. So that was kind of my preconceived notion of his motivation was that he's just here to make money. Like, if he exploits these people, cool. If they end up getting swindled into thinking that he really cares about them and he gave them a home cool, he still makes his money. Like that was kind of my default assumption as to what happened because I really wasn't shown anything otherwise. And it's early on in the film, but the part where all of the circus members get in a fight in the alley and he, you know, calls off the fight and then you expect him to be all upset about, oh, I can't believe that they're being bullied just because they're different. He's like, hmm, I can turn this to my advantage. (laughs) Get a lot of publicity. So we see a lot of that, but I don't think we see any sympathy for any of the other characters or empathy so we have spent a good chunk of time talking about the greatest showman um so ladies and gentlemen would you recommend this film to your friends do you think you'll watch it again how what's your general takeaway from this movie i'll go first i think i would watch it again i'm not clamoring to watch it again Um, Though after some of these discussions, I might have to go get it again just to see if I can find some of those connections that you guys have mentioned. Overall, I thought it was a good movie. Like I I liked the music. I liked the story. Overall, I think it was a good movie. And I think I would watch it again. And Adam, what about you? Uh, I don't know that I would. Um, It's fine. Like so bad. (laughs) It's I didn't hate it as much as I hated La La Land. Um, It may actually be the best movie musical of the last like decade because I'm not sure what else would even be in the running. Yeah, between I that heard and all. "Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again" was actually a lot better than one would expect with that title. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have actually heard that as well. Although I heard it was sort of just like uh, that was a drinking movie. Like you watch that when you're drinking and you just have a great time. Oh, fair enough. Um. But yeah, like, like, I don't know what else is even what the competition would even be, honestly. So where this movie frustrates me is that I am like you keep saying, oh, story doesn't matter. Story doesn't matter. But for me, story does matter. 
Ah, uh, I said screenplay doesn't matter. There's a difference. Shut up. No, there's not. <laughs> um, and that the story of this musical, not the screenplay, just the story, right, is not very interesting to me, right? Like, there's there's very little development from really any of the characters. Things happen just because, like Charlie think, I think said at one point, because they need to happen, right? There's no, like, motivation within the story for things to actually occur. I appreciate that it's trying to make commentary about, like, you know, we should treat everyone the same, and, you know, oddities are people, too, with feelings, you know, this is me, you know, that stuff. Like, I get that, but it felt very shallow to me. Yes. Like, it's very surface level. Like, this movie's about as deep as a kiddie pool. That's... Like, I at one point called this snarkily to Amber in the text messages she's been referring to. I called this a musical version of Crash. It's harsh. Which is <laughs> really harsh. I didn't get that reference. Which I, I also either. Which I also went hashtag shots fired. But because um, <laughs> Crash sure is also clever. Crash is was the best picture winner from sometime in the two thousands, right? That's supposed to be all about like racism and stuff like this. But that's also a very shallow movie, right? There's you... not any real nuance to that, and that's frequently what I felt like in this movie as far as the messaging goes. And while the message itself is good, I think they could have delivered it better. That's interesting that you say it that way because that was part of my hesitation to see the movie was because everybody had built it up about what a deep, deep message it had about tolerance and treating everybody equally and how everybody has feelings. And I went, okay, am I going to drown in this? Like, this is going to be tough to swallow. And then I watched it. I went, this isn't nearly as deep as I was led to believe it was going to be. Right. Like, I guess like, okay, I guess it's great. We're having the conversation at all, but it's really just sort of like, you know, these are people too. And I'm going to go, you know, hang out with the upper class and then we're going to do this whole other side plot and like yeah i liked the attempt at trying to make it more subtle because i think eventually if we're going to normalize oddities or normalize you know people that traditionally might have stuck out in maybe an older society um if we're eventually going to normalize that event it has to be normal at some point it can't always be such a huge stick in the mud thing to for us to all get over eventually we need to just get over it and it's going to be a thing and i I don't know if that's what they were trying to do or if they just didn't do it well enough. Yeah, it could be that. Because in many ways, it, to me, it feels like this movie is like, look, we're addressing the problem. Aren't we great? Yes. Pat me on the back. Self-congratulatory. Yes. yes. So this is a movie that, you know, if people are like, let's go watch The Greatest Showman. And I was like, yeah, OK, I want to hang out with you. Sure. Like, I'd be fine with that. Or, you know, if it showed up on TV, like I'm going to half watch it. I don't know that I would actively seek it out again to watch it. Yeah, so I had a lot of issues with the story and the script of this movie, especially where it came to conflict. And I mean, as Adam already brought up again, just how things just happen because they're supposed to happen in any given moment. And uh, but at the same time, there were a lot of stuff like I kind of glossed over this because it's easy to kind of pile on it. There are a lot of things I actually really liked. I liked the music of the movie a lot and I liked Zac Efron and I guess I wouldn't say that I'd watch the movie again, but I'd definitely listen to the soundtrack again. And maybe if, you know, as Amber mentioned, if we go back and watch this without all of those things in mind, or maybe having seen it and being willing to give it a pass, it might be a lot more fun, like as a sing-along sort of event. I'm not sure I agree that because it's a kid's movie, though, it can't handle topics in a way that is valuable for adults. I mean, there's lots of kids' movies that do that all of the time. 
And I don't think you necessarily have to gloss over topics. You can just handle them in a more clever way in order to have the parents have something to watch too or to grasp onto. So I think that's kind of a cop out as well. But again, like I would listen to the soundtrack again. In fact, I have. I've listened to it a couple of times in the last couple of days just to re-listen to all the songs. And like especially something like The Greatest Show, which is it's kind of interesting that in the the OST it you get to hear the entire version of the song, like the Hugh Jackman whispering part like all the way through the end where Zac Efron and Zendaya are singing. And that I really like. That's probably my favorite song of the song in the movie. Although the, my favorite part within the movie was Rewrite the Stars. So in case it wasn't clear, I do like The Greatest Showman. Um, it is something that uh, I don't know if I would have seen it in the first place if I didn't have children and if I didn't have peer pressure from my Twitter friends to take my children to see it. But I do enjoy it. Um, there are times when I do want to see something deep and meaningful and life-changing. And then there are other times when I just honestly want to see something that makes me smile. And makes me happy for the hour and 45 minutes that I'm watching it. And I think that's what this is. It's it's like cotton candy. You don't want to eat it all the time. Um, but sometimes you just need something sweet and sugary and fluffy. And this is the perfect uh, film for that. Um, it's that's great. Exactly that was fantastic. That's exactly how I described it to Brienne. <laughs> except I was doing that derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, and, this movie's just like cotton candy. No <laughs> substance. Leaves you wanting more. <laughs> and who knows, maybe it causes cavities after watching it too much, but I don't think I've gotten to that point yet. Mental cavities. Uh, yes, mental cavities. Um, but no, this. I think that this film, it, it definitely fills a need for a lot of people, not just those who are searching for a happy escape, but those who have experienced, uh, in the case of children, bullying or some kind of... Uh, being a social outcast. So I think that it's something that we don't see a lot in Hollywood. And I'm, I'm just glad it exists. I've, I've said that before in real life. Like, I'm glad that this movie exists. And uh, now that we've talked about this, I think that it might be time to talk about something else that you think the listening audience should watch. So Adam, how about you go first? So I spent a lot of time talking about how I didn't really enjoy this musical. And, you know, I'm not alone in that. But I think I'm going to recommend a musical that's also pretty, like, unpopular. I'm so curious right now. What is this? And my guilty pleasure, as far as musicals go, is the 1969 Paint Your Wagon. (laughs) Which is also in The Simpsons at some point, right? Don't they make a Paint Your Wagon reference? Yeah, there's a broad parody of it. Look at you tie his two references back (laughs) together. What? (laughs) um, There's... First of all, I like the music. I, okay, understanding that there's some differences between the movie version and the Broadway version. But, you know, the movie version, like, I like a lot of the songs in it. You know, obviously they call the wind Mariah as a standard. Wandering Star, by the way, with Lee Marvin went to number one in the UK, so shut your mouth. <laughs> he's talking to me like I understand because I've never seen this movie and I have no idea what he's talking about, but I am smiling and nodding. Paint Your Wagon is set in the 1800s. Thank you. <laughs> prospectors out west looking for gold and broadly what happens is um gene seberg is um the wife of a mormon who has too many wives so the prospectors convince him to give a wife up to them because it's the 1850s and it's the 60s and yeah all these (laughs) sorts of problematic things fine yeah um but 
So then she falls in love with uh, both Lee Marvin's character and Clint Eastwood's character. Say we know where this is going. And so they decide to do sort of a reverse Mormon thing where she, she has two husbands. <laughs> and then meanwhile, there's like prospecting going on and then they build a city because they strike gold and stuff. So All right. But yeah, uh, not, not the most uh, widely respected musical, but my guilty pleasure. So Kelly, do you have one to recommend to us? Uh, I do. Um, yes, my, if we're sticking with the whole guilty pleasure musical theme, um, mine is definitely Meet Me in St. Louis. Good um, choice. Yeah, 1944, Judy Garland, uh, Tom Drake. It was just lovely. One of the first uh, musicals that I watched uh, with my grandma because I did theater and choir when I was in school as a kid. And my grandma said, you know, there's these cool movies where they do both of those things at once. <laughs> and I said, What? And so she showed me everything she had and Meet Me in St. Louis was my... How old were you at the time? 18? (laughs) (laughs) No. I was maybe late elementary school, so like between 8 and 12-ish when I started watching a whole bunch of these. But I remember I saw Meet Me in St. Louis when I was in sixth grade and I was in The Wizard of Oz, which the movie version of that also stars Judy Garland. And when I saw that Judy Garland was in another movie, this is when I'm realizing that actors do multiple things. (laughs) And she was absolutely stunningly beautiful. The cinematography was awesome. A lot of that was, a lot of effort was put into that to make Judy Garland feel beautiful. She was going through a tough time. And the music in it is awesome. Um, Her romance with Tom Drake is adorable. She actually sings a song about the boy next door. And just, it's lovely. That's my favorite. Great. Thank you. And Charlie, what about you? So I didn't talk about the greatest sin this movie committed because I wanted to save it for now, which is that it, (laughs) completely wastes Michelle Williams. <laughs> she like really yes. has nothing to do in the entire movie. And she has <laughs> once she has her one song, all right? That's fine, but I would my recommendation about is to recommend based Venom? No, I'm about to recommend <laughs> most of Michelle Williams' filmography. And I can name specifics. So going back Please to a movie do. that I've already talked about, Dick from 1999, which still has her favorite my favorite musical oh, moment she of is hers. Okay. She is. Brokeback Mountain Meek's cutoff was great. And if you want to kind of go the complete opposite direction, a movie that does not feel good at all, you can see Blue Valentine, which was also, she had a wonderful performance in that too. So it just makes me sad to see her. Oh, I have to pick pick one? one. All right. uh, uh, How about Blue Valentine and Meek's cutoff? Those are probably my two favorite performances of hers. And what? Meek's cutoff. It's like a 2010 movie. It's like a Western where she's part of a a wagon train that gets lost. And that's really all you need to know about it, I think, going in. For a while, actually, the interesting story behind that was that for a while, I wanted to watch it on Netflix because I heard it was good. And I was so upset at like the transfer of it that I turned it off. And then later I turned it on. I'm like, huh, it's weird. They still have the problem. And it wasn't a problem. It was a, um, it was a four by three aspect ratio. <laughs> I thought it was a mistake, but that's actually how they filmed the movie. Oh, wow. Like on purpose. And it becomes clear why exactly they're doing that as you progress. But initially, I thought it was like, this can't be right. And I was angry at Netflix. (laughs) Oh, because you thought they were doing a full screen? Exactly. I thought they were cutting off the full screen for some reason. But no, it's intentionally four by three. Messed around with the settings for a while. (laughs) And I couldn't fix it. Well, yesterday morning, I thought I knew for sure which movie I would recommend. I thought it was going to be Mary Poppins Returns. So I forked out over 50 bucks for my family to go see that on opening night so I could recommend it to you all. 
And unfortunately, I can't. I didn't really Uh-oh. like it. I know. I didn't like it that much. It was. Do you recommend saving um, your money then? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I, I mean, I don't even know if I would wait till it's on Blu-ray. I would say Netflix. Because if you've seen the original, it's pretty much song for song the same. Uh, they have songs that align with all of them except for Sister Suffragette. And that's because, spoiler, the mom's dead. And so there is no mother character to sing that. But for all of the other songs, there's an exact correlation. And it was just more charming in the original. Uh, So I think that my actual recommendation for charming, fluffy, cotton candy type musicals is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And yeah, that I discovered as an adult because my daughters were so obsessed with Mary Poppins when they were little tiny. And I was on IMDb looking up Sherman Brothers musicals. And that was their other big one. It was the follow up to Mary Poppins. And it has Dick Van Dyke in it. And it's adorable. It's not anything deep. It's not an Academy Award winner. It's not like most of Michelle Williams work. But it's something that's... Ian Fleming wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes, it's it's from the makers of Dr. No, um, which is also incredibly entertaining. It has Benny Hill in it, too, who I didn't huh. realize was Benny Hill until we saw the trailer for it yesterday that they played. They played the old trailer before uh, Mary Poppins Returns. My husband and I looked at each other and we were like, Benny Hill? But it's him. So I do recommend Chitty Chitty if you're looking for something along the lines of uh, The Greatest Showman. If you want something completely different, then I would recommend Team America World Police because that was the musical that I could think of that was the least like The Greatest Showman. (laughs) I guess that is a musical. I guess that is a musical. And every time there's a montage in a film, even at the beginning of The Greatest Showman, I sing a little bit of the montage song in my head. Well, everyone, thanks for humoring me and finally watching The Greatest Showman. I had a lot of fun talking to you. And I'd like to especially thank Kelly. This is her first time on the podcast. And uh, you survived, so that's good. (laughs) Um, Everyone has to kind of get through the first one, and then it gets easier. So I'm sure that uh, I don't want to speak for Charlie, but I'm going to speak for Charlie. I'm sure Charlie (laughs) will... Would like to have you back at some point and uh, talk to us about other films. Perhaps a new musical will come out that uh, we would all want to talk about again. Well, I'm sure Adam has a whole bunch of foreign films that uh, are lined up that he's ready to discuss with us. Well, that's true. I don't know if Kelly wants to be on <laughs> So, Kelly, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Yes, um, I am... <laughs> I am a member of the Tempe Community Chorus, and we sing a whole bunch of different styles of music, anything from Broadway. I'm still going to get this to sing Rewrite the Stars. It will happen. Um, And we sing um, traditional choral music. We sing some acapella music. And that wasn't enough acapella for me. Um, A group of friends and I actually formed an acapella group called Acquired Taste. Acquired spelled (laughs) like choir because we're cute. There it is. And um, we have a SoundCloud link. We also have a Facebook page. So you can visit our Facebook page, Acquired Taste, and check out some of our clips from our most recent concert. So on behalf of Cinematic Respect, I'm Amber Elby. And uh, I do have books. This is my opportunity to plug uh, my own books. Um, I write Shakespeare uh, young adult novels, Shakespeare-inspired young adult novels that are available on Amazon. And if you want more of the podcast, please subscribe to us. The website is cinematicrespects.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, also Letterboxd. Charlie, oh, what, what is Letterboxd? Letterboxd? What is that? Kill it. 
It is a it's, it's a yeah, movie it's logging. That's a movie logging website. You go on and you log the movies that you watched when you watched them, and you can give them a star rating and then a little review if you'd like. So give it's like bad reviews. So it's like Goodreads, but for movies. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. Oh, nice. You fixed Star Trek Beyond yet? Uh, I don't believe so. I think that's one of the ones that stands until further notice. Until I you know visit, you watch I know when you come visit. exactly. <laughs> it's like I'm sure I'll have to fix it like a month from now. <laughs> you just obliterated her list of ways to watch the podcast. <laughs> Shouldn't have brought up Letterbox. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, oh, okay. So I'm going to start. Three, two. Yeah, don't waste that on them. Yeah. And then also keep okay. in mind, Amber, I be, I've i got myself on one channel and I've got everyone else on another. So I, if they're talking in the background and stuff, I can't separate that. So just be aware, okay. like ta- talking over each other is going to be bad. In this case, usually like I could do my own like intro. Exactly. I could do my own intro right now and you'd never know. So I would just cut out Adam. For those of us listening, you lose the fact that this is maniacal laughter after about two seconds, and it just sounds like a demonic woodpecker. <laughs> like a pitch-lowered dolphin. <laughs> yeah. <it's... laughs> yeah I kind of want that for the outtake. Yeah. Please use that. <laughs>